I am not going to go into uh, all the details that I read about this event at all, uh, but these are the thoughts, the impressions that this story, when rereading it in the Gospels, because it is mentioned, it's depicted in all the Gospels, um, there, there are nuanced accounts of uh, the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. And I'm going to be focusing actually more on the account that John gives. Uh, not for any particular reason, except that something just before um, the account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem that is um, described by John struck me as, as significant and, and pertinent. Um, I'm sure for many of you, if you've been brought up in uh, the Christian faith, uh, if, you, if, if you're like me, you've had from your earliest years knowing about the Easter story, then it, 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 it comes with familiar things. This roller coaster, really, of emotions, once you get your head around it. This ebullience, this proclamation, this, this celebration as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, followed by the dark days in the following week of Monday, Thursday and Good Friday, and then up again into the wonderful proclamation and, and celebration of the risen Christ on Easter Sunday. And as a child growing up in rural Cheshire, this was accompanied by beautiful countryside. I'm not saying that the Essex countryside isn't beautiful. But for me, it was just a splendid time as a child. Okay, It was a time uh, when my father, who worked five and a half days a week, he had a bit of extra time off and he was in a nice mood. He wasn't that he was a bad-tempered chap, but he was quite, you know, laid down with, with a burden of work. Um, it was, uh, as I've said, a time of beautiful surroundings. And uh, I went to a Methodist church, a little church, um, out in the middle of nowhere, literally surrounded by fields. And um, it would be, yes, time off school, uh, Palm Sunday, yes, we'd probably be making palms, drawing palms in Sunday school. Um, we would uh, then go into the Holy Week and we'd come to Easter Friday, uh, sorry, Good Friday, and we would be having fish for dinner, which as a child I thought was a bit curious, uh, and lots of people still maybe do find it curious. Um, and at the same time, it was something special. It was something we didn't normally do. <clears throat> we weren't a family with a great deal of money, so having actually fish on a Friday was special. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was then we, we were going from that time, uh, as I say, uh, to the Easter Sunday when we were um, celebrating uh, with victory. We were celebrating with good Wesleyan hymns in the, uh, in the Methodist church. Occasionally I'd go with my father to uh, the local C of E um, and uh, would be blessed with those songs as well, those hymns as well. So, a time of anticipation and excitement, a bit of a roller coaster of emotions ending on a high. As the years have rolled on, I've kept that sense of excitement for Easter, but thought a little more deeply about its component parts and um, <clears throat> excuse me, around 
the age of 14 or 15, I made a personal commitment to Jesus and that made the whole thing become far more relevant, far more alive to me. I struggled to get my head around some of the aspects and I have been very critical, um, I have to say, of a seemingly fickle crowd who first welcomed Jesus as their Messiah, their emancipator, and then they jeer and scoff and demand his death for the release of Barabbas, imprisoned for insurrection and murder. Hindsight, is so, as so often is said, is a wonderful thing. How easy it is for, it is for us to criticise when we ourselves may well have reacted in just the same way if we'd been in that bewildering situation. So, as I said, let's look at a few aspects of this account. All four Gospel writers, as I've already said, describe Holy Week in some amount of detail. In fact, this one week of Jesus' life is given a lot more coverage than other aspects of his ministry. Each writer delivers a nuanced account of Jesus' life and death with different emphasis according to their own background and their intended audience. However, there are some solid common facts. Now, one thing I wanted to say at the beginning is the expected king comes, but does he come in the expected way? Everything happened as God ordained it would. Prophecies that were made from the beginning of time come to pass. And one little, you might find it a little bit flippant, but I wrote down, what God says goes, and how he achieves it is his business. We may find it odd that these things happened in the way they did, but God foresaw everything that was going to happen. He planned it. The Bible is the authentic word of God. We say that, don't we? Whatever version we've got. It's the authentic word of God and the Old Testament and New Testament intertwine, they mesh into one whole story, the whole narrative of the plan of God. Whilst we have many different stories and themes, it's all the narrative of the kingdom of God. As I read as I read through the Easter story again, I realised afresh how it was the coming into being of all that God had purposed for the redemption of mankind. Oh, are we getting something? Yes, sorry. So, we have many prophecies, as I've already said, and as you know. Okay. And centuries, 18 centuries before Jesus was born, God said these words to Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in Matthew 1, we have this statement regarding the descendancy of Jesus from Abraham. In Isaiah, we read that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 
for he will save his people. We read time and time again, this was to fulfil what so-and-so said. Micah, Zechariah, Isaiah. In the portion of scripture I studied most for this sermon, uh, John uh, 12, there are around seven references to the Old Testament. Jesus himself referred to and quoted from the Old Testament and understood that what God had purposed would happen. He lived his earthly life in the knowledge and the rhythm of God's plan. And we all know that in entering Jerusalem, he was nearing the time when he would be fulfilling God's ultimate plan for him to be offered as a once and for all sacrifice for mankind. But even men who are not aware of it can be used in God's plan. This is a little bit that uh, really impressed itself upon me when I first started looking at this this uh, well-known story. Let's look at what happened shortly before Jesus' Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, according to John. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and evidenced his deity in doing this. Bad news for the chief priests and Pharisees who feared that the Romans would come and take away both their holy place and the temple of their nation. Outrageous from the Sadducees' point of view because they didn't believe in resurrection. And here was Jesus raising somebody from the dead. So Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the year of Jesus' death and resurrection, said to the leaders of Israel who convened to decide what to do with Jesus, you know nothing at all. You don't realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Nor do you understand that it is expedient and politically advantageous for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Then it says, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he was unknowingly used by God and prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the purpose of gathering together into one body the children of God who have been scattered abroad. Again, referring to Isaiah 49, verse 6. I wonder if he, when he said those words, that he, he wondered where they come from. Because it says that he did not say this on his own. He was used by God to, make, to say these words. And as the commentary in my Bible says, he was a prophet in spite of himself. So everything was going according to God's plan. Are there times when we have said things without realising the importance of what we have said or done? Have others spoken into our lives? Maybe even those who don't have, as far as we're concerned, an allegiance to God but have been used as vehicles to bring about the purpose of God. Something to ponder on. I remember years ago, a very good friend of mine, when she was praying with me, saying, Joan, God will use whatever he wants, whoever he wants, 
to fulfill his purposes. If something could have stayed with me through the years. Another time when I was very low uh, emotionally, I went away and a friend just before I left her said to me, you will be strong. And I thought to myself, that was just exactly what I needed for someone to tell me that I would be strong. And it did sink into my spirit. I still think about it today. Because this was someone who I didn't believe had got any faith in Jesus, but was used by Jesus to speak to me. And I feel it's important for us to know that we can be vehicles to speak into people's lives. And when we're connected with God, that's even more powerful, isn't it? Because we're listening to God. We've got the Holy Spirit with us to impart to us what we need to say. So don't belittle yourselves. God can speak through you. We then see the fulfilment of the prophecy in the manner of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. There we go, here's our donkey. I thought I like that picture, it's a bit of fun, isn't it? Zechariah 9, verse 9 states, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter is Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. It's all a fulfilment of God's plan for the world. Jesus walks at exactly the pace his father asks him to. He pulls back from allowing people to proclaim him Messiah until the time is right. He asks some people not to publicise what he's done for them so that he can fulfil his ministry For example, after healing a man of leprosy, he sends him away at once with a strong warning, see that you don't tell this to anyone. I'm not sure he actually followed that out. I think he did speak about it. But Jesus was walking at the pace that the Father asked him to. He knew the ministry he had. Do we walk at God's pace in our lives? Do we communicate with him closely enough to know what he's asking us to do and when we should do things? I would say for myself, it's very patchy. There are times, yes, when I've had a a sense of the rightness of stepping out at a certain point, doing something at a certain point. But there are plenty of times when I've been impetuous, when I've actually thought, right, that's it. That's a germ of an idea. Go for it. And I've not waited on God to get his timing for things. In Romans 5 verse 6 it says, You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It was God's timing. And at the end of John 12, Jesus says, I did not speak on my own, 
But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Before this, he's been in Bethany with Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. He's been anointed with expensive perfume of pure nard by Mary. And the nature of Judas is becoming apparent. He's been revealed uh, by his reaction to Mary's actions and the knowledge that he's been stealing funds uh, given to support Jesus' ministry. A large crowd of Jews had gathered to see Jesus and Lazarus and the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus as well because on account of him many of the Jews were going away from the teaching and traditions of the Jewish leaders and believing in Jesus as Saviour and Messiah. Who were they waiting for? Who was this expected king? For Jews the qualities of the Messiah will be a male descendant of the Jewish king David a human, human birth, human parents, a perfect teacher of God's law, a great political leader, able to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, a ruler over humanity, a bringer of peace to the world, someone able to unite humanity. And what about the Hebrew people? Were they expecting a warrior? Possibly. Whatever they knew of the scriptures leading up to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they were under the rule of the Romans. They wanted to be released from the, the oppression. And they, they perceived from the words that Jesus has spoken, the things that he has done, that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to release them. Someone to free them from Roman oppression. Hosanna, the word they shouted in praise and adoration, literally means save now. The people were using it as an exclamation of joyous praise but also they expected the Messiah to save them from the oppression of the Romans. They were awaiting the coming of the Christ, the Anointed One. Maybe he would be like Moses, who would lead the people to a new freedom, a new exodus. Others were looking for the coming of one like a son of man, as foreseen by the prophet Daniel. But most expected that the one who is to come would be a great military leader, like King David, who would expel the Romans and set up a new Jewish state of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth, to many Jews, couldn't be the expected Messiah because he didn't fulfil their expectations of the Messiah or Christ. And we know that Jesus rides in on this donkey. Is this a sign of his humility? 
in some ways it is. We read that he comes humble and unassuming and riding on a donkey. But the donkey was also a man of princes and kings. A royal steed in the Old Testament. The king rode on a donkey, not a horse, because he'd have to be a conqueror. But he rode on a donkey to symbolise an arrival in peace rather than a war-waging king arriving on a horse. The meekness and lowliness is the fact that he comes with no military apparatus. He doesn't bring an army. The donkey is a sign of his kingliness. A symbol of peace, meekness and majesty. Jesus comes to bring support to the common man. He comes in peace to support and lift up, not to crush. Words of Matthew about the nature of Jesus echoing prophetic words of Isaiah 42, 1-4. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. So rather than the king coming in to wage war in the sense that would have been understood then and the way that we sadly understand it now in these recent times seeing new conflict emerge. We see that he comes meekly but not weakly. Jesus was not a pushover, as we know. He comes to speak with authority, the authority of the Father, with forthright truth. In three of the Gospels, we see him come into Jerusalem and then go into the temple and throw out the um, people who were abusing God's place. He demonstrated righteous indignation, even anger, towards those who willfully twisted God's plans for his people. There were merchants selling sacrificial animals in the outer court of the temple at exorbitant prices. They were stopping people from coming to worship. And Jesus put a stop to this. In fact, in John's Gospel, This account is much earlier on, so it could have been that it happened twice. Whatever the case, he comes as a servant king. He comes meekly, full of peace, full of grace, full of wanting to get down alongside common man. But he comes with authority. 
People were making access to the temple extremely difficult for the poorest members of society, preventing them from worshipping God. At other points, when questioned about who he is, about his authority that he's, he's showing, he's exemplifying, he speaks directly to people. He knows people's hearts and minds. He speaks, again, with the authority of the Father himself. We read in Luke 19, verses 47 and 48, that Jesus was teaching day after day in the temple and all the people were hanging on every word he said. His presence, his words, were compelling truth because they were coming from God himself. Again, a reminder of those words at the end of John 12. He speaks by the authority of the Father himself who sent me and who instructed me what to say. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the servant king. He's coming as a king who will serve and save the oppressed. He comes to associate with the lowest in society, the wayward and sinful, to seek and save the lost. This is his mission. In John 3.16, he's already made it clear that he's been sent by the Father to save the world through his death. And in John 12, verse 47, he reiterates that he's not come to judge and condemn the world, but to save it. He comes in obedience, fulfilling the Father's will. He serves, and he still serves today. Going forward into uh, the Holy Week, We know that he meets with the disciples and he serves. He washes their feet. He gets down to that level. And he gives this as an example of what we should be doing for others. Not just those who share our faith, but for those in society who need to know the loving touch of God, who need to be introduced to Jesus, our Saviour. We see this humility in the washing of the feet, this desire to connect at the most intimate level with mankind, graphically represented. Such a fantastic demonstration of his kingly mission being for the common man. And then he dies. Matthew 20, 28 says this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his ransom, his life a ransom for many. And whilst I was preparing for this, as I come to a close, I was given these words, or these words kept um, occurring again, in my mind, he emptied himself. All the way through the preparation 
I had, he emptied himself. I don't think we can get our heads round what that totally means. We, we know that he was, he was grieved in, in spirit, wasn't he? He was troubled in spirit because of what he had to do, because it was everything he gave. It wasn't partly giving of himself. It was total giving of himself. He emptied himself. Philippians 2 says this. Although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, as one with him, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, but emptied himself by assuming the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And we know after that we have those wonderful words that God raised him up, lifted him up, so that at every, uh, that every knee would bow before him. But at this point in the story, yes, we have the wonderful entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We make way for the coming king. But we know that that journey, just as physically, it went from up to down and up again. That's what our Holy Week is going to be, isn't it? It's going to be acknowledging the death and sacrifice of Jesus. And the time, this time next week, we will be raising our voices in celebration that this Jesus who gave himself for us died and rose again and that was God's plan. There are many songs which cover the death and resurrection of Jesus. Meekness and majesty is the one that's been going through my mind as I've been preparing for this talk today. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. This is your God. We're going to sing that in a moment to close our service or don't know if Trevor thinks we need something else as well. That's absolutely fine. But I'd just like to pray for us before we do that. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you that your plan, all that had been prophesied, came into being in the person of Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you that he did not waver in his commitment to follow out your plan.
We thank you that he walked in pace with you. We thank you that he stooped to the lowest levels. But whilst he became fully man, he was fully God. And he spoke with your authority. Your words were his words. Lord, I pray that we would humbly submit to you. That we would connect with you on a daily basis. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would know what to say, who to say it to, how to act. And we would walk at your pace, not our own. Amen.